You know, I could not think of a more appropriate song based on our scripture passages today than what we just sang. Prone to wonder. Is that you? And our message this morning is about abiding in the vine. Great passages of scripture. I almost wish I picked something easier to preach on. But I have to tell you, anytime you prepare in an audience such as this, there's three messages that you actually prepare for. It's the one you study for, it's the one you deliver, and the one you wished you delivered. So we'll find out in a little while which one you will get. But I've had the tremendous privilege over the last three years to study the life of Christ. It's been a blessing beyond comprehension. It's completely changed my life. It's completely changed my perspective on the majesty of Jesus Christ. Incredible. He was and is incredible. The God that we serve. What a privilege. We spent nearly 90 weeks studying his life. And where we find ourselves this morning in John chapter 15 is the final week of his life. And in the middle of that discourse, between chapters 13 all the way to the beginning of chapter 18, smack dab in the middle is divine. Incredible text of Scripture. But let me bring you into context as far as where we are in the life of Christ. Because it's important that we understand the historical backgrounds anytime we look at a text. So let me say this. It's Thursday night of Passion Week. Jesus is just a few hours from his crucifixion. And he's preparing his disciples for what is coming. And there's a black cloud, literally, of disillusionment in that upper room. Two things transpire that devastate the disciples. Number one is the announcement of the betrayal by Judas. It was shocking. And we're going to look at that in detail in just a moment. Then there's the announcement of Peter's denial. These guys are devastated. Now you've got to put yourself in their place, right? Three years they served the Lord. And Peter would say to Jesus in the book of Matthew, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. And they did. Now they get to the end of the road, anticipating the kingdom of God, anticipating God setting up his millennial kingdom, deliverance from Herod, deliverance from the Romans, and the whole thing goes to pot. They're devastated. So it's in that devastation that Jesus begins to prop them up. And he uses the upper room discourse in order to do that. Really, really amazing. Which prompted him to say in chapter 14 and verse 1, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You trust in God, trust also in me. His final, final discourse with the eleven would span four entire chapters of John's gospel. And, and it would end with their crossing the brook Kidron and entering the fatal garden, which will take place in just a couple of chapters. So my question is this, how in the world had they gotten to this point? This last week was so upsetting to the disciples. Monday was the triumphal entry. And we must imagine the scene 
in the city. You realize during Passover that the city of Jerusalem would swell from 40,000 inhabitants to well over 2 million? The place was jam-packed. And they find out that the Messiah is at Bethany. So this entourage of people go to Bethany. And Jesus leaves Bethany and begins his triumphal entry. I don't want to ruin Easter week for you, but the triumphal entry was actually Monday, not Sunday. Although we celebrated on Sunday, right? Truth. So we have this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The atmosphere is at a fever pitch. Jesus is being hailed as the long-awaited Messiah. In everybody's mind, their deliverance is finally here. This is it. This is it. And these 12 guys, you think about this. Of all the people on the planet, God chose 12 ordinary men. Now they're devastated. Now let's put that in today's perspective. There's over 8 billion people on this planet. And God chose you. Is that not awesome? God chose you to dwell in the vine. God chose you to bear fruit. God called you to his vine. And we're going to look at that here in just a moment. So Monday, triumphal entry. Tuesday, Jesus cleanses the temple and starts an uproar with the Jewish leadership. These guys were snakes. Every Passover, the money changers would collect approximately $60 million from the people by charging exorbitant interest rates and money exchange. It was terrible what they had going on. So Jesus on Tuesday goes in and upsets the apple cart. Remember, he goes in and he cleanses the temple. He flips over the table of the money changers. And the area where they're doing this is in, is in the court of the Gentiles, which historians tell us could hold as many as 210,000 people. And Jesus, our majestic Lord, drives them all out. He drives them out. Amazing. How do you think the Jewish leadership responded to that? They weren't real happy, were they? Wednesday morning, we find our Lord leaves Bethany, and he comes back to the city. And he's teaching in the temple, and he's subjected to three attacks. And I call these attacks from the three stooges, right? Three separate attacks from the Pharisees, the scribes, and Herodians. Everybody is turning away from Jesus. Everybody is deserting him. And that very week, I believe it was Tuesday evening, Jesus tells his disciples that the temple will be destroyed. The nation of Israel will be erased because of their unfaithfulness. This is shocking, shocking news to these guys. They would not exist as a nation for another 2,000 years. In their minds, this is not the way it was supposed to be. We didn't sign up for this. We signed up for the kingdom. Did not the Lord tell the disciples that you will sit on 12 thrones judging the nations? What in the world happened? These guys were twisted at this point. The rug is being pulled off from under the disciples step by step. No nation, no Messiah, no kingdom, and they're devastated. And in the midst of their confusion, their turmoil, their grief and anxiety, he begins to prop them up. 
And he tells him in chapter 14 and verse 16, that I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because he neither knows him, neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives in you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And of course, we know that he does, right? In the form of the Holy Spirit. And do you realize, I want you to think about this. Do you realize when you were placed into that vine that the Trinity took up residence in your heart? Is that not astounding? I taught on this passage about three or four months ago, and I remember driving to work, going down the Morgan Highway, and looking at that sun, that sunrise, and this, this struck me. The God of the universe, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, took up residence in me. I was, ast I was astounded. Me. And I'm going to save a little bit of time at the end of the service to tell you how 44 years ago, the Lord dragged me kicking and screaming into his kingdom. And he attached me to the vine. Great what God has done in my life. I shouldn't even be standing before you here this morning. I should be in a grave out in Massachusetts, laying beside my wife. And I'm going to tell you why that happened to me and, why, and how God took care of business in my life. So this is the 15th chapter of the book of John. And Paul, I appreciate you reading that. No, I don't have to read it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding you. So there's four elements in the metaphor. Element number one is the vine. Element number two is the gardener. Element number three are the branches. And lastly, element number four is the nature of the branches, which is what we're going to look at. I mean, perhaps you're at a point right now in your Christian life where you think you're just a big zero for Jesus. You don't really do much. You're just kind of going through the motions. My goal here this morning is to encourage you to let you look at your life and see the fruit that you do not even know you're bearing. It's amazing. It's astounding. Because when people think of fruit bearing, what do they usually associate that with? Evangelism. Right? How many have heard this? If you're not winning souls, you're not bearing fruit. Have you heard that? You think that's true? You're going to find out it's not. Evangelism is a little portion of fruit bearing. Just a portion. Yes, it's a fruit, but it's a small portion. And we're going to see this morning how Jesus always taught in simplicity. He always cited things that they could easily grasp and that they could understand. So he starts off in verse 1 by saying, I am the true vine. My father, he is the gardener. And he cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be, be even more fruitful. So obviously, Jesus is the true vine. That's what he's saying. And incidentally, this is the seventh I am statement in the book of John. Now, I know you have a turkey hangover, but help me out. What are some of the other ones in John's gospel? I am the what? Just yell it out, right? The door. I wrote them down so I could look smart. But yeah, there was seven I am's in John's gospel. This is the last of those. In fact, John 6, I am the bread of life. 
John 8, I am the light of the world. John 10, I am the gate. I am the good shepherd in John 10. I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And right here, I am the true vine. So that's metaphor number one. I am the vine. My father is the gardener. Otherwise translated as husbandman, tiller. Translated elsewhere as a vine dresser. That was, that's, that's the father. And here's the sobering part of this passage. The father cuts off every branch that does not bear fruit. I want you to think about that. Every branch that is not bearing fruit, he cuts off. That is sobering to me. He cuts off every branch of me that bears fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. To his father is the gardener, and he cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit. Now, obviously, there are two pictures going on here in John chapter 15. We need to understand the nature of the branches. One branch represents believers, fruitful believers, by the way, which you may not realize it, you are. The second one are unbelieving branches. And what happens to those unbelieving branches? They're cut off by the Father and what? Thrown into the fire and burned. Sobering, sobering passage. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit. Now, this is obviously an unbeliever. And he says in verse 6 of chapter 15, If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and they are burned. Amazing. He uses the word remain or abide some ten times in this passage. Ten times. It means, to, it means not to depart, to continue to be present, to be held and to be kept continually. And as I said, Jesus always taught in pictures that they could easily relate to. So we have one branch, unbeliever. Branch number two, fruitful believers, abiding in the same vine. Every branch that does, that does bear fruit, he prunes it so that it'll be even more fruitful. The picture is easy, it's simple, but has profound implications for the disciples and for us this morning. You know what Jesus is saying in essence to the disciples in this context? He is saying this, don't do what Judas did. Don't walk away. We'll talk about him for just a little bit, and we'll get into a little more detail with him in just a moment. But you do realize now that Jesus gave Judas the power to heal the sick, the power to raise the dead, the power to cast out demons. Judas! How can that be? That's the reality of it. I thought Judas was abiding in the vine. Was he in the vine? Or was he on the vine? To be in the vine is to bear fruit. Judas was not in the vine. He was hanging on by his lips. Right? This is what we call profession without possession. He was hanging on to that vine by his lips. And the question we're going to address in just a few moments is how do you know that you're not hanging on to that vine by your lips? How do you know you're no different than Judas? 
And the text gives us the answers to these questions. And as we go down through here, I guarantee you, you will be greatly encouraged when we are finished. So don't walk away as Judas did. Judas was the branch that was cut off and thrown into the fire. So how do we understand these branches? What is their nature? First of all, we must understand who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to the 11 disciples. Because Judas has been dismissed into eternity. They're talking to the 11. And the Lord says this, that you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now that's very, very interesting. Because if we go back to chapter 13 and take a look at verse 10, something really interesting happens. Actually, let's pick it up in verse 3 of chapter 13. Jesus knew, about, knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And of course, he comes to Simon Peter. Sandal breath, right? The only one of the 11, the only one of the 12 who would walk into a room mouth first. Always sticking his foot in his mouth. And he does the same thing here. So the Lord comes up to Peter to wash his feet. And he said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? In other words, what, are you out of your mind? You're not going to wash my feet. And the Lord says, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus had answered, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. And of course, Peter goes into his usual meltdown. Right? Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Isn't that classic? Classic, Peter? Absolutely classic. It's precious. And Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that's why he said, not everyone is clean. And he was talking about Judas in that picture. The branch that was going to be cut off and thrown into the fire. How sad. How sad, how sad, how sad. With Judas dismissed, he says to the eleven, you are already clean. And I find it interesting in John chapter 17 when Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer to the Father. He says this in verse 6. I revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. They were purified because they believed our Lord's words, and they accepted him. That's how they were converted. And do you know, we are saved in the exact same way. Right? Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 10 and verse 7. He says, Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through what? The word of Christ. We're saved in the exact same way. We hear the word, we accept the word, we respond to the word. God infuses the spirit into our lives, and we're immediately plucked right into the vine. How awesome is that? Fantastic text. And that's what he's talking about. 
We're saved the exact same way. Which brings up a principle. That principle is this. It is imperative that every time we share our faith, we use the scriptures to outline what we believe and why we believe it. Pat, isn't that right? We just had this conversation. You use the word of God because the Holy Spirit takes that word and he convicts the human heart. That's how it works, by God's word. And the Lord said this, John chapter 16 and verse 8, when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of guilt and in regard to sin and righteousness, in regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. They do not accept the words. They reject the word and they walk away because they were never attached to the vine. Never attached. So sad. You know, mankind rises and falls on the word of God, whether one is a believer or one is not. And let me go on to say this. This may shock you. I don't know. But I'll tell you what the scriptures teach. There's only one sin that can place a person in hell. Did you realize that? Just one. It's the sin of unbelief. That's what puts a person in hell. All the other attributes of a sinner's life are merely symptoms of a greater disease. The fact that they're outside of the vine, they're outside of God's kingdom. I don't care if you're an adulterer, a drunk, a homosexual, not any one of those sins will put you in hell. What those sins do, they add to your punishment that you're going to receive because you get away with nothing in life, do you? Romans chapter 2, there is a passage in there, and I like to call it God's divine layaway plan. We sin now and we pay later. Paul calls it storing up wrath unto the day of judgment. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit at the end because I lived my life there for several years. And believe me, I had a pretty big ledger. I had a lot of points in the bad column. And I was in a major, major trouble at that point in my life. But as I said, there's only one sin that can place a person in an eternal hell, and that is a sin of unbelief. Paul, in speaking about people trapped in the tribulation period. They're all unbelievers because we're gone. We're in heaven. They're all unbelievers. And Paul says this in chapter 2, verse 10. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and all will be condemned who have not believed in the truth but have delighted in wickedness. They don't believe the truth because they're not in the vine. They're not attached, which is why our Lord said in verse 4, to remain in me, and I will remain in you. Don't walk away from me as Judas did, and as many others had done. Walked away. Terrible, terrible situation. Now let's look at the unbelieving side of the ledger. We've seen the believer side. Let's look at the unbelieving side. This is the curse of not abiding. The curse of not abiding. Because if you're in the vine, the scriptures promise that you will bear fruit. So this is people who are not in the vine. Again, I said earlier, this is profession without possession. This is, this is the negative side of it. You're hanging on by your lips. Judas was on the vine, but Judas was not in the vine. Which why our Lord says again in verse 6, if anyone does not remain in me, he is like the branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, 
thrown into the fire and they're burned. You see, it's always an issue of the heart, isn't it? Just because someone professes to be a believer doesn't mean he's a believer. I hope you realize that this morning. It's not lip service, it's heart service. It's faith in the living God. It's faith in accepting God's word. I'm going to show you something very sobering. Back again, chapter 13. We're in the upper room, we're at the meal. Look at verse 21. After he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and he testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. And when you look at the response of the disciples, it's very telling in regards to Judas. His disciples stared at one another at a loss as to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Who is it? And the other gospel writers tell us that one by one, they all responded in the same way, saying, Lord, is it, is it I? Is it me? Here's the point. They did not have a clue that Judas was the branch destined for the fire. That is very telling in my eyes. When I realized that truth, it's, it's, it's sobering. It's sobering to the core. So leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Wow. That's some tough stuff. Tough stuff. And then the Lord says to him, what you are about to do, do quickly. Jesus told him, but no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought that Jesus was telling him to go buy food or what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. And as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and John says, and it was night. You see what happened in that upper room? The sun set for the final time in the heart of Judas Iscariot. At that time, God the Father severed him from the vine and threw him into the fire. He was the branch destined for the fire. That is some, that is some scary, scary stuff. I got another scary passage for you. I'm going to help you to define this. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Probably by far one of the most sobering passages in all of the Word of God. Because our Lord says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. So my question for you this morning is this. How do you know you're not going to be standing in that group? How do you know? Is there evidence in our lives that can show us that we will not indeed be in a Matthew 7 situation? 
The answer to that question is right in the verse itself, and let me reread it to you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but look at what it says. Only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. They're the only ones that are truly in the vine. So the question begs an answer. What is the will of God? What is God's will? What does that mean, Lord? What does it mean? You know, in John chapter 60, Jesus is having a hot discourse with the Jewish leadership, which he always did. And they asked him this question. What must we do to do the work that God requires? And the work of God is this. Believe in the one he has sent. That's how you know that you're not going to be standing in Matthew chapter 7 if you believe in the one whom the Father has sent. That's the true vine, Jesus Christ, the one of which we cling, hanging on for dear life. And God nourishes us, and God gives us fruit. So we, what, what must he do the work God requires? The work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. Now, something else I thought about as I was preparing for this. We are living in God the last days of God's calendar. In fact, possibly the last hours, right? There's a growing massive departure from the faith. People are leaving the vine in droves. It's, it's, it's uncanny. What is going on? Now, I want you to take a trip with me. I want you to turn back the clock in your mind 25 to 30 years. And this will apply to most of us in this room. And I want you to take a look at your families. What kind of state are they in? Well, in my world, all my kids were safely tucked under my arms. We were faithful. All my kids went to Sunday morning service. They went to junior church. In the worship service, they went to, they went to their own service. Sunday night, we came back at 6 o'clock for the evening service. Wednesday night, sure enough, we're back in the church. And you can see them all this, safely tucked under their arms, under your arms, faithful. Right? As far as we know, they're in divine. Everything is hunky-dory, as they say, right? Now turn the clock back to November the 27th, 2022, and look at the same family. Where are they? Anybody defect from the faith in your family? They did in mine. I've had branches leave the vine. And I know many families in this room, and you know I know who you are, have experienced the same thing. The disappointment of people walking away from Jesus Christ. It breaks the heart. Breaks the heart. Not abiding in the vine. Really, really difficult. Really difficult to take a look at these things. They were attached to the vine by the lips, but they were never in the vine. Really scary. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 10, at that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in chapter 2, talking about the rapture, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed about some prophecy, report or letter, supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. That's the end time, when the rebellion occurs. 
And I submit to you this morning, the rebellion has already taken place because people are falling off the vine in droves. The rebellion is already here. It's just a sign of our times. It's a sign of our times. So my question is this. How do we explain the departure from the vine and the general lack of passion in God's church? And I don't mean heritage. I mean God's church in general. How do we define this lack of passion? What in the world happened? How can we explain such a thing? Well, I think I have the answer for you, and I'm going to read it real quick. Revelation chapter 2 and 3. There's seven pictures of churches in the book of Revelation. And most scholars will tell you that these individual churches represent different times in human history, different times in church history. Right now, as far as I can tell, we are in the last age. We are in the Laodicean age. And let me read to you the character of the church because it's sobering. Chapter 3, verse 14 says this, To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or one or the other. So, some, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. They're going to be cut off the vine. That's the age that we're living in. I believe we are in the final hours in God's, God's calendar. So you need to stop beating yourself up of why family members have walked away. You probably did nothing wrong. It's the nature of the age in which we live in. And we need to, we need to trust that. And we need to trust God's sovereignty in the situation. So now let's talk about fruit. What is fruit? If you're abiding in the vine, the promises of God is that you will bear much fruit. So what is it? Fruit is righteousness. It's righteousness. It's the umbrella that settles over the top of the vine. And all the other fruits come from that fruit of righteousness. And they trickle down, produced by God's precious Holy Spirit that lives in us. And we're not going to go through all of them, but I want to give you just a, just a few that I think are very, very interesting. Once I find my passage anyway. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. And you, and you should all know these pretty much by heart, right? Pretty much. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Joy. You can say it. Peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now I want you to look at your life. And I want you to answer this question. Is your life characterized by love? Is that the general pattern of your life? And I don't mean 100%, 24-7, every single day you're displaying love. But if you love the brethren... If you love the Lord, if you love his church, guess what? You're bearing fruit. You realize that? You're bearing fruit. Is your life characterized by joy? Would you consider yourself a joyful person? I certainly hope so, right? Because when you exercise joy in your life, you're bearing fruit because you're attached to God's vine. We should take great encouragement over this that we are truly in God's vine. 
truly in the vine. How about patience or how about peace? Do you have a peaceful heart? In this twisted, crazy, nutty world we live in, is your heart at peace? When you display peace, you're bearing fruit. How about patience? I struggle with this one. God, give me patience to give it to me now, right? When you look at your life, would you consider yourself at being characterized by patience? Because when you exercise patience, you're bearing fruit. And let me give you an example. You go to Weiss Market. You leave Weiss Market. You go down the driveway and you get in the right-hand lane, and you're the only car sitting there at the red light. You know where I am, right? What's it say? No turn on red. So what do you do? Take a turn on red, don't you? I won't ask for a show of hands. But I will only say this. There have been times when I've been guilty as charged. However, had you waited till that light turned green, you would have been bearing fruit. Interesting, right? How about kindness? Is your life displayed by kindness, characterized by kindness? When you show kindness, you're bearing fruit. Goodness. When you characterize goodness, you're bearing fruit. Faithfulness. When you're faithful to God's word, you're faithful to God's church, you're faithful to the Lord and overall, you are bearing fruit. Gentleness. Is your life characterized by gentleness? Do you go through life like a duck? Serene going across the pond. Looks wonderful, but underneath the water, man, he's petting like crazy. Gentleness. Does your life display gentleness? Then you're bearing fruit. And then the last one, self-control. Are you self-controlled? Do you exercise self-control in your life? You're bearing fruit. So again, you're at the red light. And some wingnut is in front of you, and you can see him through the rear mirror. You can see him through the rear window, texting his brains out. And you know what happens. The light turns green. And sure enough, there he is. Still there texting away. Right? What do you do? Do you lay on the horn? Yeah. Probably. Right? You're no different than me. You lay on the horn. If you waited till the man pulled out, you would be bearing fruit. But you passed that up. So yeah, there are many fruits in the scriptures. I'll give you two more, and I'll just tell you what they are. One of them is worship. You realize when we worship, we're bearing fruit. It's the fruit of our lips, according to the book of Hebrews, and according to Hosea chapter 14 of the Old Testament. You're bearing fruit. How about giving? Did you know when you give, you're bearing fruit? Whether it's a monetary gift or it's a gift of a deed to someone else, you're bearing fruit. And lastly, the fruit of evangelism. When we're involved in evangelism, we are bearing fruit. And you do realize this, and I know that you do, that you, know have, you have no power to bring somebody to Christ. All you have to, the power to do is to open your mouth, right? One writer put it this way, he says, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. So we need to do that. I saved a couple of minutes for our time at the end, because I wanted to tell you a little bit about my life. I was raised in a church that taught me that if I lived a good life and my works, my good works outweighed my bad works, I might get in. And if I had 
kept the eight sacraments in the church, I had a shot at it. But I wasn't in that boat. When I was a teenager, I joined a band. A lot of you don't know this. I was a professional bass player. True story. Traveled up and down the east coast of, of, Rhode, of Rhode Island, Massachusetts. Played all over the place. By the time I was 16 years old, I was playing in nightclubs. 16 years old. We actually would put mascara on and make ourselves look older. So they wouldn't kick us out because the drinking age back then was 18. So I'm in this band. And I'm playing my brains out. And we were good. I kid you not. We, we had a following in the whole shot. But all the time that I'm in that band... I'm storing up wrath. And I remember being involved in things in my life where I said, I'm going to pay for this. Someday I'm going to pay for this. I had enough wherewithal to know that. So my brother-in-law, Bill, some of you know him, Bill Boulay, pastored Grace Bible Church for 14 years. You know him and I played in a rock band together? True story. So Bill goes out and he gets himself converted. He comes back and starts talking to me about the things of God. And I'm looking at him saying, wait, now wait, wait, wait. You mean to tell me you're going to heaven? Are you kidding? Bill, I know who you are. You've got to be kidding me. There's no way you're going to heaven. So he starts telling me the gospel, about all, all about getting saved. And a couple of years pass, you know, I'm looking at this man's life and I say, I, whatever it is he has, I want. I want that. So at age 19, I made a deal with God. I said, you know what, Lord? I'm going to be good. I'm going to change my life, right? And I tried. Two years. I went to church. I did the rosaries, the Hail Marys, the Our Fathers. I even spoke to Buddha a couple times. I wanted to change because I was under conviction. God had his finger on my heart. And then the day came that will live in infamy. This was September 18th, 1978. I was under so much conviction about my sin and so terrified that I was going to go to hell and payday was coming. It was a Sunday night. Went to bed. My wife went to bed early that night because she had a new job in the morning. I drank my usual six-pack of Budweiser watching TV. Went to bed about 11 about 1.30 in the morning, I heard a blood-curdling scream. It was incredible. I knew something's not right here. I jumped out of bed, and my feet hit that floor, and it was hot. I said, oh, this don't look good. I went over to the lamp. I turned it on. Couldn't see a thing. The room was full of smoke. Full. And we'd been in there, we don't know how long. Somehow I woke up. It was a miracle of God that I woke up. And I immediately looked down the stairs where we went to get up into this third-story apartment, and all I saw was a wall of flames coming up those steps. Now let me tell you something. I lost it. I started screaming at the top of my lungs. And my in-laws lived two stories down. I yelled so loud I woke them up. And two things immediately went through my mind in that room. Number one, Jack, you're going to hell. Number two, you're leaving right now. It was terrifying. 
I didn't know what to do. I'm running around this room like a chicken with my head cut off, and suddenly, and, and I can't get my wife up because she won't wake up. She's not responsive. Finally, I gave her a couple of gentle slaps. Actually, it was harder than that. She wakes up. I says, honey, the house is on fire. We've got to get out. Well, how are we going to get out? Go get the fire ladder. We had a fire ladder in the other room. Couldn't, couldn't get to it. Flames were too intense. So I said, I got an idea. You know, it's crazy how things pop into your head sometimes, right? I says, give me all the sheets off the bed. I tie them in a knot, and I'll let you down. Now, we're two and a half stories up. How far do you think those sheets went down? Not real far. <laughs> so my wife, being gullible as she is, I put her on the windowsill. And she's hanging there, and I'm going to start lowering her down. Now it's starting to get pretty warm behind me. So I says, honey, let me give you a little bit of, of uh, husbandly assist. She dropped like a box of rocks. Straight down. Two and a half stories. I still remember to this day her nightgown fluttering in the breeze. She hit the roof two and a half stories down. Landed this way. Ripped all the skin from her belly button to the bottom of her chin. I came out after her. You know, there's a thing firefighters call, I think it's called backdraft, where the room all of a sudden will explode, literally explode. That happened. And I was either blown out the window or I dove out the window. I don't know how, but I ended up going down. I think I did a half gainer with a twist. I landed on the roof two and a half stories down with my feet facing the peak. And I missed the ventilator pipe from the bathroom by about 12 inches. I should have been impaled. And I remember looking up at that window and the flames were coming out of there like a blowtorch. And like a lunatic, I was laughing my head off. I beat death. I cheated death. It was amazing. And I told God right there, I says, Lord, from now on, I'm going to be really, really good. No more drinking, no more smoking, no more cussing. For the next two weeks, my life was characterized as one of terror. I couldn't work. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. Because all I saw was smoke, flames, fire, and the prospect that payday is here and I'm going to pay. It was terrifying. Terrifying. In 14 days to the day that fire happened, I was sitting in a rented house, 11 o'clock at night, sitting at the kitchen table. And I had a meltdown. I was anticipating going to work the next day after everything that had happened to me, and I was a mess. And I remember I started talking to the Lord. I says, God, I'm done. I, I can't do this anymore. I have tried everything to please you. I have tried everything. Nothing works. And I remember this. I said, Lord, if you want me, you're going to have to take me just the way I am. And guess what happened? The Holy Spirit came right into my heart. And I felt a peace that I have never, ever felt in my entire life. A peace that passes all understanding. Somehow, even though I didn't understand it all, I was gloriously saved. That was 44 years ago. And my wife was saved about a year later. And that's how God dragged me, kicking and screaming into his kingdom and attached me to the vine where today I still abide, which is where we need to abide. Well, I kept it a little late. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the true vine. We thank you for the gardener. And Lord, we thank you for the fruit bearing that we all experience in our lives. And just pray now.
You bless the rest of our time. In your name we pray. Amen.